Hey, welcome back to another episode of the History Essay. I hope you all are having a wonderful day. We got another great episode lined up for today. So in the previous episode, I kind of mentioned how due to the um, current unrest surrounding the police brutality protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, statues of certain historical figures, in our case, Confederates, uh, were being torn down. They were being vandalized all over the United States. Well, this wasn't, or this isn't just a phenomenon that's confined to the United States. It's also happening in Europe. So really quickly, in the UK, the statues of certain slave traders were torn down and thrown into the river. Winston Churchill, who also has a statue in London, has also been targeted due to the fact that he was very... Although he was the prime minister that led the U- the UK during World War II, and he was a very important figure in that conflict in shoring up the support for the UK and leading the British people, he was very pro-colonial. You know, when there were movements for independence all throughout the British Empire, he was one of the people speaking out against these independence movements. He was one of the people like, no, we need to keep the British Empire because what we are doing for these people is good. When in reality, it really wasn't. So, you know, his right now, his statue is currently under protection because it's a debate amongst the British people. You know, do we consider that the good that Churchill did outweighs the bad or do we consider it both equally And, you know, what do we do with his legacy? There's a whole debate around his legacy happening right now. Across the English Channel, we go to Belgium. The statue of a certain King Leopold II has also been vandalized numerous times and taken down as well. This man and his legacy are the focus of today's episode because it is a chapter in world history which has been overshadowed hidden away, but it is one which needs to be discussed more often and more in depth. King Leopold II has largely escaped the reputation as one of history's most evil human beings that has ever lived, thanks largely to the fact that the Belgian people are very uncomfortable bringing up King Leopold and his legacy. You know, it portrays Belgium in a rather negative light. It puts Belgium on the same standing as other colonial powers when it comes to colonial abuse. So it makes Belgium look just as bad as the British and just as bad as the French or just as bad as the Germans in their colonial histories. And the Belgian people don't like that, you know, that this spotlight is being placed on them and... You know, it it disrupts the image of Belgium. You know, I also wanted to do this episode because recently the independence of the Democratic Republic of the Congo was recently celebrated in Brussels in Belgium. And the king of Belgium went to the the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo's uh, embassy in Brussels, 
and he said a statement which um i'll discuss a little bit later on but it was a statement which kind of left me saying like hmm you know you're really not sorry for what happened there are you but like i said we will discuss it a little bit later on as the episode progresses so this terrible legacy starts with the ascension of king leopold ii to the belgian throne in 1865. belgium came onto the scene at a time when europe was rapidly modernizing at a time when colonialism was in high gear Belgium's neighbors, France, Germany, and very notably Great Britain, the greatest colonial power at that time, the most powerful colonial power at that time, all had colonial possessions around the world. And Leopold certainly didn't want to be left behind. He wanted a colonial possession of his own as well. But mind you, a colonial possession of his own, not one for Belgium. He could care less about that. He wanted something for himself. In this aspect, Africa is the last frontier. Leopold knew that if he had an African colony, he would be able to fund all of his grand ambitions. In the long term, he would be able to profit immensely from an African colony. So in this aspect, he reached out to one certain Henry Morton Stanley, a British explorer rather prejudiced man, had a very low opinion of the African people. He hired Henry Morton Stanley to lead what Leopold would call a scientific expedition up the Congo River. Stanley would ultimately establish trading posts along the river. And Leopold also instructed Stanley, with the use of forced labor, to construct a road along the Congo River in order to extract any sort of valuable resources and transport them out of the Congo, and that way they could be transported to Europe, sold all over the world. Henry Morton Stanley, he achieved his initial goal set out by, or set forth by King Leopold. You know, he used forced labor, which cost the lives of many people in the process of constructing this road. He achieved this goal. He built that road. Some of, a lot of that infrastructure is still around today. And in achieving this goal, they were able to amplify the trade of ivory, which at that time was a very valuable resource. It was very in fashion at the time. So with this road built, they now had something going for them. So initially when the ball got rolling, Leopold was very attentive about the image he was putting out to the world with regards to what was happening in the Congo. He wanted to be seen as the redeemer of savage peoples. His actions in the Congo were rather comically were referred to or were portrayed as charity work. What he was doing in the Congo was an act of kindness that deserves all the praise in the world. And according to a film by Adam Hochschild called King's Leopold's Ghost, it's still up on YouTube if you want to give it a view. I definitely recommend you should. Um, in this film, it is talked about how 
Leopold made great use of PR in sort of how to portray what was going on in the Congo, what Leopold was doing on the Congo. And King Leopold's spin, King Leopold's perspective, his the way he wanted to be interpreted was that everything he was doing in the Congo was positive. There was no mention of the already horrific forced labor slash torture that Henry Morton Stanley was or had committed in the construction of the road, how many people had died. There was no mention of how Stanley forced natives to sign treaties, which, mind you, these natives couldn't read what they were signing, and they didn't know that they were signing over all the rights of their land over to Belgian officials. So there was no mention of that. There was also no mention of Leopold, you know, personally profiting off of the Congo. Instead, what is being told to the world is that Leopold is opening up Africa for free trade. Leopold is a crusader against the slave trade. This is the message being put out to the world's press. And this message is so successful. It is so convincing that it fooled the United States and other European powers into ultimately recognizing and legitimizing Leopold's claim over the Congo. They gave Leopold their full support and they ultimately gave Leopold a free hand to do whatever he wanted in the Congo. So with the European powers in the United States ultimately convinced, in 1885, Leopold changes the name of his own private country to the Congo Free State. Everything in the Congo was the property of King Leopold. Shockingly enough, even the people were considered his property. But of course, Leopold wanted to make as much money from this adventure as possible. So he attracted foreign investment. And the way he did this was he granted foreign corporations concessions in the Congo. With these concessions, they could essentially do as they please. All the exploitation, all the forced labor could happen however much they wanted for the sake of profit. And Leopold wouldn't care or Leopold would not protest it. The Belgian parliament was also a target of Leopold in terms of investment. The Belgian parliament also ultimately gave Leopold a development loan to fund his, quote, charitable activities in the Congo. But of course, they came with conditions. And one of the conditions was that upon Leopold's death, Belgium be given the Congo Free State. I want you all to stay tuned because there is a very interesting twist in this part of the story. So remember, Leopold gets money from the Belgian parliament with the conditions that after Leopold dies, it's kind of like, hey, now that he's dead, give us the Congo Free State. Stay tuned. It gets very, very interesting. So with King Leopold's good reputation intact, many people around the world, they wanted to see King Leopold's amazing experiment of charity and goodwill in action. One of these people was 
an African-American minister, lawyer, and journalist by the name of George Washington Williams. He decides to go to the Congo, but he also decides to try and recruit other African-Americans to join him in working in the Congo. And boy, was he in for a very rude surprise. When he got there, he was a witness to the brutal torture at the hands of Leopold's officials, as well as Stanley, Henry Morton Stanley. He was also a witness to murder at the hands of Leopold's officials. There was reported use of ox chains, ox chains that would be tied around the necks of Congolese people, and that would be used to sort of just, you know, force them along. And it was said that these ox chains were so bad that they started to dig into the necks and the bones of the poor people that they were put on. In rather graphic detail, you know, there was reports of how these chains were exposing bone at certain point because they were like tugging into their bodies. It was just terrible, you know. You know, they this is how Belgian officials bound the workers together and just marched them from place to place to do the forced labor. Williams also was a witness to court officials, Belgian court officials, acting very unjustly and unfairly towards the natives. And even worse, you know, again, you know, sort of backtracking a bit, Leopold is portraying that he is a crusader against the slave trade, yet Williams is ultimately a witness to the fact that there is slave trading going on here in the Congo. So horrified at what he sees, George Washington Williams has a letter published in the New York Herald. He criticizes the United States for giving Leopold recognition, for giving Leopold legitimate recognition over, you know, the Congo Free State. But he also used it as a platform to accuse Leopold and Belgium of what was going on in the Congo Free State. He also, George Washington Williams is very prominent because he used a phrase which today we we use whenever we describe anytime a genocide happens. In the letter that he published in the New York Herald, he stated, quote, Leopold's Congo Free State is guilty of crimes against humanity, unquote. This is the first time this phrase is ever used. This is the first time this phrase is ever used outside of the Nuremberg trials. This is before World War II. This is the first time any of any mention of crime against humanity, the concept of crime against humanity is even mentioned. That's how bad things are in the Congo Free State. It inspires this guy to use this phrase. But of course, Leopold is rather unfazed. Leopold is like, eh. And he justified his actions by dismissing Williams' account and saying that, you know what? Hey, the Congo, ultimately, at the end of the day, as is mentioned in the film, King Leopold's Ghost, the Congo was a business. It needed to lessen its deficit. The Congo needed to lessen its deficit. And the people needed to be taught to value work. 
that, you know, that concept of, you know, through hard work, you will ultimately be free. That's what he wanted to do, you know, and that's how he justified what was happening there is, well, you know, hey, it's a business is people need to lessen their deficit and they're being taught to value their work. That's how we justified it. In the large scheme of things to Leopold, Williams critique didn't matter. It was insignificant. It was insignificant because ultimately, again, this is a time of rather open racial prejudice. The Belgians viewed the Congolese and African people in general as less than human. So, of course, things like whipping with a particular whip called the chicot. This was justified. To keep the workers in line and whipping them, that was totally fine. These were, after all, these are not humans that, these are not humans. These are not humans worthy of any sort of respect. So it's fine. It's fine that by using this whip, if if it was used too much, it could possibly kill its victims. It's totally fine also that the, the force publique, a private army of Congolese orphans used to, quote, keep law and order in the Congo Free State, it's totally fine to keep these subhumans in a state of terror and keep law and order there. It's totally fine to use this because, again, they're not worthy of that respect. The Belgians don't consider the Belgians, King Leopold, they don't consider them to be worthy of that. They're just there for labor. They're just there to work. That's their natural state. Remember, this is the train of thought in Europe and in, throughout the world at the time. Again, you know, these in the mind of the Belgians, these less than human beings, their only use was for labor purposes, gathering ivory, and later on, the rather exploitative and very harmful process of harvesting rubber. That's all they were good for. That's all they were useful for. So with the introduction of rubber, this is a very important point. With the introduction of rubber, because it was so valuable at the time, a lot of Congolese sought to avoid this work. In gathering this valuable and in rather incredibly lucrative resource, Leopold's officials, they decided to impose a quota system. Villagers and forced laborers, they had to meet a certain amount of rubber. And if they didn't meet that quota, a punishment would be handed down. This punishment would be that the hands of these laborers would be cut off. If the laborers refused to gather rubber, the force public soldiers would also just indiscriminately kill villagers, women, children, and everyone in the village. So in the film, just a little side note, it is mentioned in the film King Leopold's Ghost that for white Belgian officials, there was a fear that the bullets being used by the majority um, African force public soldiers, 
there was a fear that the bullets being used by the force publique were going to be wasted in hunting. And so the force publique, in order to cover up that they were hunting, you know, and trying to enforce the quota system and covering up their hunting, in order to expose that they had not been hunting, they would simply go to the, you know, these villages, they would go up to any random innocent villager and they would go and cut the hands of innocent villagers. They would go and just say, extend your arm, cut the hand off. And that's how they would show proof to their white Belgian superiors to say, hey, look, we did our job. We weren't we weren't wasting our bullets on hunting. Here's proof of it. So there were a lot of villagers who were innocently mutilated due to the fact that the force public didn't want to be exposed for supposedly hunting. This is the type of terror that is happening at the hands of Belgian officials. All of this mutilation, all of this abuse, all of this torture is brought to light by an African-American Presbyterian missionary by the name of William Shepard. William Shepard is really interesting because he travels to the Congo, he sets up a school, and he ultimately learns the language of a lot of these Congolese people, and they tell him a lot about the abuses at the hands of Belgian officials. And so Shepard ultimately collects these accounts and he denounces all of these actions taken by the Belgian officials in an article that was printed throughout the world's press. You know, he denounces the cutting off of hands. He denounces the cutting off of the quota, uh, the cutting off. He denounces the quota system. He denounces the forced labor. He denounces the indiscriminate killings of the forced public. So William Shepard is another person, aside from George Washington Williams, that is bringing to light the abuse at what's happening in the Belgian Congo, in the Congo Free State. Another person, and this might sound, this person might be familiar to you all, who was taken aback by all that was happening was Joseph Conrad. Joseph Conrad at first, like the United States and like the rest of the world, was convinced that King Leopold was doing something good in the Congo Free State. And he decided to go check it out for himself. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go see this great experiment for myself too. King Leopold is awesome. You know, that that's what Conrad initially thought. Then he went to the Congo. And he saw firsthand what was really going on. And in the film, it mentions that this ultimately caused Conrad to have a bit of a breakdown. And what I mean when I say that he had a bit of a breakdown is that he ultimately starts to question human nature itself. Because he has witnessed some terrible stuff go down during his time in the Congo. To the point where he's like... God damn, what is going on here? You know, what? what is what is even human nature? How are people so inclined to be so evil? Joseph Conrad eventually gathers himself and gathers his thoughts, and he writes perhaps one of the most prominent, well-known books that sort of recounts this experience in a fictionalized setting, of course. The book is Heart of Darkness. It is a book which is very much based on his experience at the brutal reality of life for the native peoples in the Congo Free State. 
it is my personal opinion, after having read this book twice, Heart of Darkness makes Uncle Tom's Cabin seem very tame by comparison. Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, by Harriet Beecher Stowe is a book, you know, which denounces the evils of slavery. It, like Heart of Darkness, it also presents a fictionalized account, but nevertheless, it is one that when you compare it to Heart of Darkness, it is like, wow. It's they're not even in the same lane, I would say. But that's just my personal take on it. Because Heart of Darkness is a lot more realistic. It's a lot more brutal. It's a lot more just you need to read Heart of Darkness. But bad publicity, it ultimately begins to pile up against Leopold II. You know, first it's George Washington Williams. He gets the ball rolling. Then it's William Shepard. And then it's Joseph Conrad and his best-selling book. But the person who really goes in for the kill against Leopold II is Edmund Dean Morell. He's a British journalist uh, at the time when all of this is happening. And he starts to do investigative journalism into finding out what is going on in the Congo Free State. Leopold's secrets slowly but surely would be exposed by Morell. It is Edmund Dean Morell who ultimately found out that while working in Antwerp, that lots of resources were coming into Antwerp, Belgium from the Congo, but that only guns and ammunition were being sent back to the Congo. Morell sort of put two and two together and said, someone is making lots of money here. And someone is also suffering a lot here. He found out that Leopold was making vast profits off of rubber, rubber harvesting. He found out that, you know, there was use of unpaid slave labor. He found out that even though Leopold claimed to be saving the people of the Congo, he his actions him profiting personally, all of this was very much displaying the opposite. You know, villagers were being forced to wear numbered collars that would display how, whether they were meeting the quota or not. This is an example of stuff that Morel uncovered. In 1903, the Belgian parliament, well, some members of the Belgian parliament, they denounce King Leopold II and his actions, and they decide to launch an investigation. The British consul, who is in the Congo Free State, whose name is Roger Casement, during his investigation, he uncovered deep-rooted corruption amongst Belgian officials. He uncovered torture of the Congolese people. He uncovered accounts and reports of rape, killings, slave trading, etc. All of these negative actions happening in the Congo Free State. But, of course, Mr. Genius of PR, King Leopold, is said to have been shocked by these reports. He's kind of like, I can't believe this is happening. You know, like, oh, like, I, I am so shocked at this. But, of course, while initially being shocked, he says, you know what? I think it's time for another PR campaign. And he launches a counter-information campaign. And in the world's press, he starts to expose himself. Because now he's in investigative journalism. He 
and his PR team start to expose the crimes of other colonial powers in Africa, namely Britain, France, and Germany. He starts to sort of air out their dirty laundry instead of taking accountability for his, you know, to sort of hide his, he starts to say, well, look at the Germans, look at the French and look at the British, look at what they're doing. And he also puts another spin to it. He's, his PR team starts to promote the peace and the prosperity in the Congo Free State. They start to sort of really pat themselves on the back. But of course, the reports of Casement, which bring up topics of mutilation, rape, killing, etc. Leopold's PR team takes this into the crosshairs. What I mean by that is they go after this by putting out the information that these people's hands were cut off specifically because they had cancer of the hands and that this was just a simple surgical procedure that Casement had witnessed. A simple surgical procedure which, unfortunately, thousands in the Congo had to undergo. Both Morel and Roger Casement, both of their reports, through use of multiple sources, witnesses, photo evidence, etc., they expose Leopold's crimes to the world. There's no hiding from it now for Leopold. And ultimately, public opinion turns against Leopold. Leopold tries to clear his name. He tries to clear his name by setting up a commission, which he hopes will ultimately, you know, make all of this go away. But it ultimately ends up doing the opposite. It has the opposite effect. Leopold's commission backfires on him brilliantly. His commission to establish the truth backfires brilliantly. Belgian officials come face to face with the horrors being committed in the Congo by Leopold's officials, by Belgian officials. They come face to face with the victims of rape, with the victims of mutilation, with the victims, survivors of massacres at the hands of the force publique. These reports and their findings, you know, some of them are so vivid, so descriptive, and so damaging to the Belgian image that even to this day, a lot of those findings are kept secret. They are kept classified. They are not open for viewing. You know, this is that type of event that paints Belgium in such a bad light that it is understandable why they would want to keep this a secret. So with all of this negative publicity, all of this stuff mounting against Leopold, it becomes very clear that the Congo Free State is a liability. Leopold needs to get rid of it. Earlier I mentioned how when all of this was starting for Leopold, he got a development fund from the Belgian parliament. One of the conditions of that development loan, you know, that development fund, one of the commission one of the conditions was give us the Congo Free State when you die, Leopold. That was the Belgian Parliament's condition. Leopold said okay. Remember how I said there was an interesting twist to it? Well, the interesting twist is the following. Leopold didn't give Belgium the Congo Free State. He went back on that promise. He sold it 
to Belgium. Belgium paid a lot of money for the Congo Free State. Here's some specifics. So in order to give the Congo Free State to Belgium, Leopold had three conditions. Number one, Belgium had to assume 110 million francs worth of debt in the form of bonds. Number two, Belgium had to pay 45 million francs towards Leopold's building projects. Number three, Leopold had to be paid 50 million francs as a debt of gratitude for his work in the Congo. So take a second to process all of that. Not only is Belgium paying or assuming the debt that the Congo has incurred, which is $110 million, they have to pay Leopold 45 million francs, excuse me, not dollars, francs. They have to pay 45 million francs towards Leopold's building projects that he still wants to do. They also have to just pay him 50 million francs personally. So this isn't a cheap transaction in any sense of the phrase. This is a very expensive transaction. And Leopold knows exactly what he's doing. He's not in any way, shape, or form the type of person who is just going to get rid of the problem. He's going to find a way to make money off of it. This is just unbridled greed here. Unbridled greed, unrestricted greed. This man knows no other language aside from greed. So in doing all of this and giving away the Congo, Leopold is trying to make this seem sort of like an act of generosity instead of the financial deal that it was, instead of the bad financial deal that it was. His ultimate goal in seeming generous to the Belgian people is to make people forget for memory of the horrors committed in the Congo. He burned Congo State archives so that way people won't ever know what he did there. His train of thought goes along with a state that he statement that he ha had said with regards when all of this was happening, with regards to everything, all of these negotiations that negotiations that were happening at the time. He stated, quote, I will give them my Congo, but they have no right to know what I did there. Unquote. Soon after these negotiations ended, nego um, negotiations that took a little bit of time to unfold and be processed, Leopold died. He died in 1909, but he died possessing one of the largest fortunes in Europe. So he was rich. He died rich. Again, this man knows no other language besides greed, besides profit. He knows no other language. And he takes all of that with him. However, by the time he died, he was already fairly unpopular, but not because of what was happening in the Congo. He was unpopular due to some internal family issues. He had problems with the wife and he didn't like his daughters. And he also had some rather, I'll just come out and say it, very unorthodox sexual practices, aka he was a pedophile. He liked young girls preferably around age 12, and the Belgian people caught wind of this, and they thought, this man is terrible. Boy, if only they knew what was happening in the Congo, or if more of them knew what was happening in the Congo. King Leopold's Ghost, the film, by Adam Hochschild, 
they estimate that the wealth that he stole from the Congo is estimated at around $1.1 billion in today's money. $1.1 billion that he stole from the Congo, that he profited from the Congo. $1.1 billion that made him insanely rich off of the suffering and exploitation of these poor, innocent people. And it just happens to be that, you know, he made all this money off of the Congo. He made all of this wonderful profit off of the Congo. But he never, ever set foot in the Congo. He never went down to the Congo. Ever in his life. He didn't know what it looked like. He didn't know what the people there looked like. He... It, it was the last thing on his mind. He didn't want to go there. He just wanted the money from there. It's clear. So after he dies, Belgium takes over of the Congo Free State. Becomes the Belgian Congo. But it's business as usual. The Belgians don't know how to run, or they're not going to know how to run this enterprise as well as Leopold did, but they're going to use a lot of his, you know, management tactics, so to speak. So they implement taxation on the Congo Free State. It is now a colony, so now the people living there, they have to pay taxes. Unfortunately, this creates even more poverty. The Congolese people are forced to pay taxes on land that they most likely will never come to own in their lifetimes. Every major financial activity in the Congo Free State is controlled by either Europeans or Belgians. Belgians are preferred. Leopold's legacy, ultimately in the Congo Free State, is that he created this system of organized plunder, this organized extraction of resources for immense profits, but also no benefit to the Congolese people and even a detriment to the Congolese people. The Congo was very rich in resources. And so it was very much in the Belgians interest to continue what Leopold had started because there was a lot of money to be made. You know, for example, the film points out that, you know, during the world wars, both World War I and World War II, the demand for these vital materials, you know, iron, rubber, etc., made the Congo a very attractive place to invest in for mainly European and American investors. But again, it was business as usual. In extracting these resources, it was business as usual. It was labor that was recruited using the same tactics as in Leopold's time, you know, forced labor, labor that was at the behest of force, of violence, of terror. The Shikot whip, which had been used during Leopold's time, is still being used to keep workers in line, to keep them on task. People were now, they were still being whipped as late as 1959. In the film, one of the 
commentators states that the Congo was made with the whip. It was created from the legacy of this torture device, the shit called whip. You know, it just, it was a fear tactic. It was a way to install order. And it was one that unfortunately was very brutal. So in 1919, another commission is convened. This is the Belgian Permanent Commission for the Protection of the Natives. What they wanted to find out was the amount of people that may or may not have perished at the hands of Belgian brutality. And what they estimated was that in a 40-year period, half the population had been lost. The problem with this commission's finding is that no one was keeping tabs on how many Congolese people were in the Congo at the time when all of this started, when Leopold started. There was no census. No one kept count of the population. But it is estimated that the amount of people that had um, died, that had been lost, that had perished at the hands of this brutal regime was estimated to be in the millions. And this was all due to the colonial regime and the rubber regime, the extraction of rubber and the brutal tactics used by the colonial system. Ultimately, all of this, however, was kept under wraps. A lot of Belgians didn't know about it. In the film, King Leopold's ghost, you know, there's mention of how some officials who worked in the Belgian Congo, some officials who may have been oblivious at first to what was going on when they later found out, they were very shocked at what they were hearing or what they were learning as to what was going on. But once they learned what was going on, they realized that a lot of people in Belgium didn't know about this. So there's mention of this man who was a former Belgian official. His name is Jules Marchad. And Mr. Marchad, ultimately, you know, he's one of these people who is shocked at finding out what took place. He goes to the Belgian archives because he wants to know what it is that happened and took place here. But the archives don't show him anything. Because the rules of the archives are that they shouldn't show anything that makes Belgium look bad. And unfortunately, in Mr. Marchad's journey and his quest for the truth, every piece of information was bad. And so they, the Belgian archives didn't share anything with him. But in 1983, he saw some records. And Mr. Marchad wrote a book. He wrote several books about his findings. And unsurprisingly, a lot of Belgians were in disbelief, and they were even in denial about what had gone on there. It was that bad that a lot of people were denying what was what this man, who was a former Belgian official, was saying. Because they're like, how could all of this been happening? You know, even as late as the 1950s, how could all of this been happening? You know, we, we're Belgium. We can't do that. Well, as late as the 1950s, it was still happening. You know, the Congo because it was an export-oriented region, it was a place to extract resources from, it was very dependent on international export. It was very dependent on foreign investment. When the Belgians took over, 
they continued business as usual, but business as usual meant they didn't give a damn about reforming the lives of the Congolese people, their political lives, their social lives of reforming the system to benefit them. They didn't give a damn about that. Again, it was business as usual. So as the 1950s start coming around, voices of outrage start coming up. And one of those voices of outrage is Patrice Lubumba. Ultimately, Lubumba is just angry, as, is, as are most of his compatriots, that the Belgians really have done nothing to better the lives of the Congolese people and that they are continuing on Leopold's legacy. And so Lubumba fights this. He fights the Belgians. He fights them for independence, for full decolonization of the Congo. He's imprisoned. The Belgians don't like his hardcore decolonization plan. They think it's a bit sketchy and they're kind of like, hmm. So they imprison him. They keep him away as because he's a threat. He's a threat to the status quo. But ultimately, he's released. He's released, and upon his release, he is sent to Brussels. In the 1960s, he is sent to Brussels after he gets out of prison. In order to negotiate Congo independence, he becomes the leader of an independent Congo. And in June of 1960, when negotiations complete are done, the Belgians and the leaders of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which would be the name, ultimately decide, all right, we are now independent. Let's continue on with the fight in order to make the Congo better. In June of 1960, you know, in order to celebrate, in order to mark this event, in order to mark Belgium's de um, departure from the Congo and the Congo's subsequent independence, King Badouan of Belgium arrives in the capital of the Congo in order to, quote, grant the Congo its freedom, sort of say, all right, you all are free, you're welcome, that sort of thing. And he makes a speech. King Badouan of Belgium makes a speech. And earlier, I kind of, just now, I kind of mentioned how he said, I kind of implied that he gave a sort of like a speech that would say, oh, you're welcome for your independence. It was a very insulting speech. It was a very condescending speech. It was a speech that, you know, even when you hear it today, it's like, wow, man, you you really, really said that to these people. But he makes this insulting speech in which he credits the independence of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to, get this, King Leopold. That's right. King Badouan of Belgium essentially tells the Congo and its people after gaining independence, he says, you know what, you the reason you have independence now is because of King Leopold and his legacy and his work and everything he did. Everything you have now is thanks to this man. And he says it to Patrice Lubumba, the independence leader. He, he says it to the 
you know, the population of the Congo listening on the radio to this speech, and people are just shocked. And Lubumba, of course, is not going to take this sitting down. This is a man, Patrice Lubumba is a man who has fought King Leopold's legacy up until this point. He's not going to take this sitting down. And he decides to set the record straight. He essentially, in his speech, explains what Belgian colonialism actually was. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't he doesn't try to paint a rosy picture of Belgian colonialism. He tells them what it was. He tells Belgian officials, the Belgian king, to his face. Well, not literally to his face. He was just sitting in the audience. He tells him, let me tell you what it really was. You know, he mentions of racism. He, men he makes mention of racism. He makes mention of exploitation. He makes mention of abuse, torture, killings, etc. He makes... All of these mentions of these horrors and abuses committed by the Belgians to the Belgian king in the audience. He also makes it clear that he wants full economic independence as well as political independence for the Congo. AKA, he doesn't want any informal form of colonialism to continue on in the Congo. This scares the Belgians as the Belgians, excuse me, as well as the rest of the Western world, because this is the Cold War. War. This is the Cold War. This is a time of capitalism versus communism. This is the Cold War. So nationalistic speeches like this are not going to be taken lightly. And so President Eisenhower's administration and the Belgians work very closely to depose Lubumba. They wanted Lubumba out of power because his nationalism was going to make it difficult for them to continue to exploit the Congo. And ultimately, they are successful. Lubumba is ultimately assassinated. He is deposed. In his place is Joseph Mobutu, who was the head of the army and who will later prove on to be just as corrupt just as brutal and heavy-handed as King Leopold would be. He ends up being exactly what Belgium and the United States would want. Belgium and the United States fund Mobutu after Lubumba's assassination. They fund Mobutu. They give him all the support in the world. They get rid of the only democratically elected leader that the Congo will have up until the modern time. Mobutu kept stuff in order and he made it easy for the continued exploitation of the Belgian of the Congo, excuse me, now independent at this time, though informally colonized through economic means. He makes it easier for them. They can continue their exploitation. They can continue all of this harsh capitalist exploitation with no problem. Mobutu will ultimately keep things under control by way of massacres and terrorism. He brutalizes his people. Mobutu also steals large amounts of money from the independent, you know, the now newly independent Democratic Republic of the Congo to the point where the government actually ceases to function. 
This makes him increasingly reliant on the United States and Belgium. This makes him increasingly relying, reliant on their support. But of course, the people, you know, they can only take so much. And in the late 1990s, Mobutu is thrown out of power. He escapes with a lot of money that the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, will unfortunately never see. He steals about $4 billion, And he ultimately dies in Morocco in a chateau that is not that far from King Leopold's former chateau. And so the exploitation of the Congo continued on. These people just could not catch a break. Whether it is, you know, the extraction of uranium, whether it is the extraction of materials for today's smartphones, whether it is the corruption that allows for the continued exploitation of these people, whether it's, you know, massacres, child armies, warlords, etc. Behind all of this, you realize that even with independence, even with Leopold's death, even with the changing times, much has not changed for the Congo, unfortunately. And that's the importance of today's topic. It's not necessarily to paint Belgium in a bad light, but it's rather to give you an understanding of the very detrimental consequences of colonialism and how they still reverberate today. You know, people sometimes may ask themselves, well, if it happened a long time ago, why are you so angry about it? I would answer with, well, you know, if they're the reason they're angry about it, you know, check out the legacy of the people of the Congo, the people of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They're still dealing with all of the negative consequences of King Leopold. They're still dealing with the fact that even after independence, the Belgians continued to meddle in Congolese affairs. It's important to learn about all this because, you know, we. it's important to know why it is things are the way they are, you know? A lot of the times we see countries in Africa and a lot of people have the very incorrect mentality of, well, why can't they just develop their countries the way we did? Why can't they just, you know, why can't they fix themselves up? That's a very common nativist argument. You know, why are they coming here? Why can't they just make their country better? Well, you know, after I explained everything I just explained to you all, you sort of have an idea of why they can't do that or why they are having trouble of rebuilding the nation is because every single time these people have tried to make stuff better, there has been meddling or they have been destroyed at the hands of a system that was never meant to benefit them. Hence their anger at the system. Hence their reason for being distrustful of the system because it has never benefited them. 
you know, with Belgium, the Congo, and all of these horrific crimes that happened here, you, I hope you gain an understanding as to why it is there, there is sometimes anger towards the former colonial powers. Nowadays, of course, they try, it's not that they try to get you to forget, but they try to get you to move past it. But with examples like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, even today, they're still dealing with the consequences of King Leopold owning the Congo all for himself. They're still dealing with the consequences of the torture, of the slavery, of the rape, of the killings. They are still dealing with all of that. They haven't got over it. And in all, with all due respect, they have every right not to get over it. They have every right to continue to be angry, to continue to demand justice. That's why recently, for example, the Democratic Republic of the Congo celebrated its independence. The Belgian king went to the embassy in Brussels, uh, the Congolese embassy in Brussels, and he said that he regretted what took place in the Congo. I found that to be very condescending because regret is not an apology. Regret is sort of like, you're sorry that you got caught, essentially. You regret that you got caught, but regret is not an apology. The Congolese people and people around the world have every right to tear down King Leopold's statue. Because as we just mentioned, he was in no way a charitable man. He was a greedy, ruthless, egomaniacal man who makes the devil seem pleasant. He was a man who, was, who sought out to make profit no matter the cost. And so for the Belgian king today to say he regrets what happens to me is not the right move. It was not well-intentioned. It was quite the opposite thing. You know, and a lot of Bel uh excuse me, not Belgians, a lot of Congolese people didn't take that well. They kind of were like, oh well, you regret it, but look at what we're still dealing with. We're still dealing with the mess that you created for us. This is a heavy topic overall, just because you know. With history, a lot of people think a lot of these events already happened, or they happened in the past and we don't have to worry about them anymore. This is a prime example of how history still affects us in the common day. This is a prime example of how history is still reverberating, is still having effects on people living today. So I hope with all of that we went over, you get a better understanding of what took place in the Congo, of why it is Belgium should take more accountability of what took place here, of why Belgium should work, well, not just Belgium, Belgium and other powers that exploited this area should work to make things better instead of continuing on what King Leopold built there, the exploitation, the extraction of resources, etc. I hope you get a better understanding of all of this. And I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed it. This would be one of my longest episodes, but this is a topic that I really have been wanting to talk about for a long time. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for sticking around. And, 
you know, if you haven't already, follow me on Instagram at, at the underscore history underscore ESE. Let me know how I did. And I hope to have you all listen next time. Thank you.